Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Genesis 50, 1 through 3. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would uh, use Pastor Matt and his sermon today to bring your truth to our hearts, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's difficult to believe, but today we are concluding our study verse by verse through the book of Genesis that we began just 19 short months ago. You know, like a lot of churches who really want to draw people in with quick, powerful, high-impact sermons, we spent two years in Genesis. We do what we can. But we began with the beginning, with the creation. Ron's giving me sign language. Ron, what are you saying to me back there? It's raining hard, so if you have windows open, God bless you. Your car got watered. Okay. Uh, We began with creation, this look into the fact that the God of the universe has created all that we see ex nihilo, out of nothing. He's created man in his own image and then given man the task of working and keeping God's perfect creation. And yet almost immediately we see sin come into the world. And yet from that beginning of sin entering in, we also see along with it the promise of a coming Savior. We've seen God's righteous judgment poured out on sinful mankind as we looked at the flood. As as God says, every intention of man's heart upon the earth is wicked only from the beginning. And so he judges mankind in the flood. And yet, throughout the book of Genesis, we've seen this reoccurring melody line of God that out of the wicked of the world, God is calling a family to himself. God is saving a family for himself. God is keeping a family for himself. And it is a covenant family of faith. And now at last we come to the last chapter in this book. The last of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anytime that it's going to speak of that, it's intentionally using those three names to say this is the covenant of the family of God. And now Jacob has died. So today, we're going to see in the summation of this book of Genesis, this is a fill-in-the-blank for you right off the bat here. Number one, a grief. 
with a hope anchored in the covenant promises of God. And yet it doesn't diminish the grief. It doesn't change the heartache that we're going to see coming from this family. We're going to see a fear, a fear of retribution of past sins, especially as Joseph's brothers look back at what they have done and rightfully fear. And then a need, we see it echoed in them and into us that we throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Lastly, a hope. A hope in the covenant-keeping God. Even if we never get to see the whole picture in our lifetime. Even if we only get pieces, like, like one or two puzzle pieces. We don't ever get to see the finished picture on this side of eternity. But one day we will. Yet our hope is anchored in the fact that our God is working those things together. So I don't know what you've brought into this room this morning. Perhaps you're living with grief. Perhaps you're living with fear. And this is a painful season of life for you, and you feel overwhelmed. In fact, so much so, because of what's happened in the past, you feel like there is no hope for the future. Oh, saints, I pray today that you will have eyes of faith to see through the cloud of darkness the sovereign, faithful God, the covenant-keeping God, who has saved you and still, even in this difficult season, right now holds you. And yet the anguish of the dark night of the soul is very much real. We feel it to the depths of our being. And when we look at Joseph, we see it exemplified as well. We've studied through the end of Genesis as Joseph is kidnapped from his family and yet faithful. He's sold as a slave, yet faithful. He's wrongfully accused. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten in prison, yet faithful. And then delivered from prison, elevated to great power within Egypt. And even after that, he's been faithful towards his brothers. It's almost like this guy has no weakness at all. Until we saw his father's blessing of his children in the wrong order, and suddenly he's displeased. But here's what we read this morning. His father, Jacob, also known as Israel, they use those two names interchangeably, Israel just means wrestled with God, and God changed his name after God wrestled with him, has died, and now Joseph is weeping. In fact, it says he has fallen on his face. This is a deep emotional response in grief. Anytime the scripture talks about weeping, it has this deep grieving aspect. We read earlier in Genesis as Abraham weeps over the loss of his wife, Sarah. We're going to read as the Israelites weep over the death of Moses. And even Jesus himself weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus. It's as if we're saying, I wish things weren't as they are. It's not to say we don't trust in God. It's not to say that our hope isn't anchored in the covenant faithful God. But in this moment, I wish things were not as they were. I feel the pain of it. And yet there's no hint of weakness that's associated with it. If you're a young man or even an old man in this room, at some point in your life you heard the phrase, big boys don't cry. Only in scripture there doesn't seem to be weakness associated with that. Just a deep longing. I wish things weren't as so. I think it's the same longing we see in the Psalms when the psalmist says, how long, O Lord? How long will things remain like this? Just a couple of examples in Scripture. Job chapter 16, verse 16, he says, My face is flushed with weeping, and deep deep darkness covers my eyelids. 
Psalm 56, verse 8, You have taken an account of my wanderings. Oh, what a precious promise this is. God, you have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Not one moment of your suffering and sorrow has been missed by God. He hears and he knows. Oh, what comfort is that, that God hears our cries, that God sees your tears, and the promise of Scripture is that God is near the brokenhearted. Yet consider, he almost never gives us the explanation of why something's happening. How those pictures all fit together. How this one piece that we have fits with this piece over here. We almost never get that. Here's what we get. I will be with you. We get the comfort of his presence. We get the comfort of his character. This is the type of God that we know he is. He is good and all he does is good. That he's working all things according to his perfect plan and for his good glory. So Joseph falls in weeping over his father. And then he has his physicians embalm his father. Process that took 40 days. Now if you know anything about Egyptian culture, you know that embalming was a long process. And often it was a religious process done by the priests. Because it had all to do with Egyptian gods. And we find here that Joseph doesn't allow that. He has his physicians do it. This is not some uh, pagan practice. This is a caring for the body of his dad. As Jacob has commanded his sons, don't bury me in Egypt. Now that sounds good, right? We've been tracking through this process. God has promised this land to this covenant family. It starts with Abraham, and, and all Abraham ever owns in the promised land is a grave, a cave to be buried in. His son is buried in that cave, and now his grandson says, bury me in that same cave. That sounds almost romantic to us. Until you consider how long it takes to get from Egypt to this cave with a dead body in the Middle East. It's not going to be a pretty trip. To do that, it necessitates an embalming process. Now, kids, do we know what we generally call, we, we have a word for it, what we call these bodies from Egypt that were embalmed like this? Does anybody know what that is? Now, we normally get it wrong because we think they do this. They don't. They just lie there, right? What, what do you call those kids? A mummy. Did you know mummies were in the Bible? Did you know that? Did you know there's actually two mummies in the Bible? And they're both in this chapter. Jacob is embalmed by the Egyptians. He becomes a mummy. Not a daddy, a mummy. That is not in the notes, and I felt bad as that came out of my mouth. I, that did not feel good. Uh, so Jacob is a mummy, and then Joseph, when he dies, is going to be mummified and put in a coffin as well. That's why for the only time in probably the history of Eden Worship Center, one of the coloring pages on your memory sheet, kids, is a, a mummy. Why else would you get to do that? It's just awesome. It says that the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. It's because of their great, not because of their love for Jacob, but because of their great love and respect for Joseph. The whole nation grieves with him. Verse 4 says, When the days of weeping were past, Joseph spoke 
to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh. By the way, every other time he speaks to Pharaoh, he does it face to face. Well, you can't come before the king while you're dressed in mourning in the middle of these days, dressed in sackcloth and ashes. You can't do that. So he says, please speak this in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear something. I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up, bury your father, as he made you swear. Consider together, Joseph up to this time has been a slave and a prisoner and now is second in command of all of Egypt. He's a very powerful ruler in Egypt, but he is still subject to Pharaoh. He's valuable to Pharaoh, and so he asks of him, please, can I go? Can I go and bury my father? And here's something that Pharaoh understood that I think many modern politicians have intentionally forgotten, and that is the only true power that you have is the power of your word and your integrity. Uh, Pharaoh understood this. How do the people know that they can trust what you say? How do the people know that they should fear what you say? And how do they know that you will do the good things that you have said because you're a man who keeps his word? You've proven yourself faithful. And we seem to have politicians today who believe I should make the biggest promises out there that I have no intention or capability of keeping, but I'll get the most votes because of it, and then I'll back it up later and blame somebody else. Oh, friends, if you don't have integrity, we cannot trust anything that you say. And Pharaoh understood that, and therefore he says, you made this promise, you must go. Sadly, Many Christians today seem as if they don't understand this principle. They make promises that they cannot keep or that they never intended to keep. They say one thing, but as soon as trouble comes, they pull back from it. And here's what Jesus said. This is a fill in the blank for you. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Christian, we represent the Christ who has saved us before a watching world. So Christian, if you fail to be a man or woman of your word, if your life isn't characterized by integrity and hard work and follow through on what you have promised, man, this is tough stuff here, you bring shame on the name of Christian and on Christ. What does it mean for God to transform someone from death to life, to make them into the image of his son, Jesus Christ? Well, evidently, it doesn't mean much because Christians don't walk in integrity. Oh, that God would raise up a generation that is faithful. It's interesting that this cave that they're going to bury Jacob in is not new. He says it's the same cave that his father was buried in. It's the same cave that his grandfather was buried in. Genesis chapter 49, verse 29 to 32. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. Remember, he didn't bury Rachel there because she died 
on the road. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Here's what he says. There's this old cave that our family is buried in, and yet he makes this strange claim that I hewed it out for myself. So what's going on? Well, without derailing us too much into that, you had a rather large cave structure, and within that there were several different shelves that in the Middle East you can't just dig a hole. Our guys who tried to dig a hole for the volleyball poles yesterday discovered our ground is very similar to the Middle East. You can't just dig a hole. It, they got about this deep, and we're like, uh, I think we're done, right? It, a little bit, okay, Richard, it was a little deeper. And yet over there, where much of the ground is rock, what they would do is they would lay the body on a shelf within a cave and just allow the natural process of decomposition and then collect the bones to be gathered up, and that's what would be preserved. And he says within this cave, within this, this one place that our family has owned in the promised land, I actually went in and cut out a place for myself. I have made a place, a resting place for myself within the covenant of God. Consider, though, Jacob never saw the fullness of this promised land in his lifetime. The only rest that he has in Canaan is in death. Oh, friends, how many of us will trust in God, believe in God, and hope in God, and yet in this life probably never see the fullness of the rest that we hope for? I don't care what the best sellers tell you, your best life is not now. It cannot happen. In fact, if you set your hope on that, you will always and only be disappointed. Oh, there is something better that is coming. There is a larger promise that God has made to his people. Look at verse 7. So Joseph went to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Uh, Friends, just look up for just a second. Uh, Basically, that communicated two things. Number one, we're not leaving. This isn't our escape plan to get out. Here's the second thing. As Moses is writing this, he's writing it to the people who've just left Egypt. And they knew that one of the things that happened was uh, going before Pharaoh and saying, God has called us to go out and sacrifice. This was God's plan of deliverance. And he said, who's going? And Moses says, everybody's going. Our men, our old people, our young people, our wives, our children, everyone is going to worship the Lord. And Pharaoh says, no, no, no. Just take the men. Let the women, let the children, let your livestock stay here. And we see uh, echoed in this that they weren't intending to leave, but there did come a time where they would take all that they had as God would deliver them to the promised land. Verse 9, they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor, just kind of lock that word into your your brain, the, the threshing floor. At Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor at Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by, what's it say? Egyptians. That's weird. Right, because Jacob's Hebrew. Joseph is Hebrew. This is a mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abal Mizram meaning the mourning of the Egyptians. It's beyond the Jordan. 
Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave, the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought in the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up to bury his fathers. Let's think just for a second about this threshing floor. It's a weird thing to mention. And yet, Scripture mentions it twice. Anytime you find repetition in Scripture, there's an importance to it. That threshing floors tended to be on these high and elevated places. Jamie Waters says this, As their flat floors were often situated in areas of wind accessibility, hilltops were traditional locations. So you'd, you'd take the grain and you'd put it on a large, uh, flattened, Floor, which didn't necessarily exist on uh, mountainous, hilly, rocky territory, but up on top of the hill, and then you would beat the grain. They they would uh, hit it with whatever to break open the husks, and what would happen is the grain, which is heavier, would fall, and because you're on top of a hill, the wind would be sweeping, and it would blow away the chaff. That's why they put them up on top of the hills. So a couple things to consider about this. Number one, it was easily visible. The Canaanites saw it because they were up on top of a hill, silhouetted up on top of this hill. Also, as you track throughout Scripture, uh, it's frequently going to talk about the high places. Every time that uh, God's people stray from worshiping the one true God and set up an idol, where do they set it up? High places. Flat places. We we could set up an idol here. Uh, They were also places of traditional mourning, Uh, and uh, sometimes just gathering places because it had a nice, big, flat floor. And yet we see uh, this illustration here that God has placed them someplace that although it is agriculturally necessary for the the time in which they live, it also had a deeper significance. Uh, There's a pointing of the fact that what's going to happen on these high places, what's going to happen on these threshing floors is not most of the time going to be honoring to the Lord. And as the Canaanites look at it, they don't see the Hebrew people honoring their dead and honoring their God. They say, that looks like Egyptians. Why on earth would it look like Egyptians? Well, because so many. We we read uh, Joseph goes to bury his father and Pharaoh's household comes. The elders of Egypt come. Uh, The important people of Egypt come. The army of Egypt comes along. There's these chariots going along. And so the Canaanites look and they say, this is a giant head of state funeral going on from Egypt. Is that because the Egyptians so loved Jacob? No. A few years ago, Kobe Bryant who was beloved as one of the greatest basketball players of all time, died in a helicopter crash. Uh, His daughter, Gianna, died as well. There there were nine people in the helicopter. And here's what happened on social media, this outpouring of love for Kobe's family, for the loss uh, of this great basketball player and his daughter. Only we almost forgot the other seven people who were on the helicopter. Now, why did that happen? Did it happen because we don't care about their lives, their lives don't have value? No, it's because the people that were beloved hold a special place in our heart. That's exactly what we have here. Uh, Joseph has been elevated from prison to ruling in Egypt. And remember what he's done. He took a mandatory tax from the people. But In the good years, before the famine came, he said, I'm going to take a mandatory tax. How many of you just love the tax man? 
Oh, praise God. Every time the IRS comes knocking on your door or giving you a call, you're like, thank you, Jesus. I'm coming to this guy's dad's funeral, right? No, he had, he had so loved and cared for the people of Egypt that they saw him as the provision of God. They loved him, they cherished him, and therefore when he loses somebody, it's as if they lost somebody and they grieve with him. Oh, this is the power of a good reputation in the community. He well represented the Lord his God, not just his own best interests. Oh, what would change, brothers, if we stopped thinking about our own best interests and represented the Lord in all that we do in the world around us? Yet remember where Joseph came from. He's had these dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. He has a second dream of his brothers and his mother and father bowing down to him. And now an entire nation bows and grieves with him. And yet, let's consider his brothers. Kids, have you ever done anything that you knew was wrong? You knew you messed up. You either did it on purpose or it was an accident. But either way, you knew you were getting in trouble. Anybody had that before? Now, if it's really bad, your mom said something terrible to you like this. You just wait till your dad gets home, right? Uh, How did that time in between feel? Awful. Prison. Purgatory. This is the worst imaginable thing. And his brothers have felt like that ever since they found out Joseph was still alive. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They remembered how they had treated him. They remembered how they had sinned against him. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Whose servants are they? The God of your father. Forgive them. And Joseph wept as they spoke to him. And here's what Joseph said to them. Because they fall down. They, they say, we are your servants. Now, in the message, which we don't actually know if Jacob sent that message or if that's just them concocting a good story to save their life, they're messengers or they're servants of God, only they fall down before Joseph and they say, we're your servants. I don't know what God's going to do to us. We're throwing ourselves on your mercy. And here's what Joseph said in verse 20. As for you, you meant this for evil. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't do the, the good Christian thing and go, well, I don't want to make you feel bad about it. No, you meant this for evil. And you meant it for evil against me. How much worse is that? But God, to the greatest words in all of Scripture, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, after 50 chapters in Genesis, we finally come to the heartbeat of this book. So let's do a little review. Kids, who wrote the book of Genesis? Just shout it out if you know. God. I heard Jesus. I love those answers. (laughs) Now, Now, 
Here's what the Bible says, that all of Scripture was written as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God used a man to do it. What was that guy's name? Moses. Moses. Got it. All right, so the answer to the first one is Moses. Uh, who did he, go ahead and go to the next slide. Who did he write it to? God. We have trained our children well. What is the answer to every question in this life? The Lord our God. I like it. He writes it to the descendants of these children of Israel, right? Who've been uh, sort of having families and multiplying and having families and multiplying. Now it's somewhere almost around 2 million people that Moses is leading. So he writes it to the children of Israel. But where did they just come from, kids? Egypt, right? Uh, did they love their time in Egypt, or was it not so great? Not so great. They were slaves in Egypt, right? They just endured a long time, a couple hundred years of being slaves in Egypt. But here's the good news. Where are they going? To the promise that you guys didn't know there was going to be a test today, but you passed it. A plus. So Moses is writing to the children of Israel who have just come out of slavery and now are on their way to the promised land. And he says, in this book of Genesis, there's two things you need to know. Number one, God is sovereign. That's been on the bottom of every screen for the last two years. God is sovereign. He's the creator of all things. He's the upholder and sustainer of all things. This is uh, him creating out of nothing, and he, he forms Adam. That's sort of like the body. God is making this body, but now in chapter 50, we find the heartbeat that gives this body life, and that is this. Our God who created all things, therefore owns all things, and rules all things, and yet man is sinful. That means bad things are going to happen to us in this world, but here is the great thing about having a sovereign God. God meant it for good. The God is bending even the worst things of this world to accomplish his good plan. He meant it, he planned it, he used it, and he's working in it. Friends, that's true for your life right now. That God has meant this moment. Maybe somebody has grievously sinned against you. Maybe your family has walked through horrible darkness and difficulties. And I don't care how evil and dark the world was, God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? Because this is true, verse 29. For those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those that he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what shall we say to these things? Here's what we say. If God's for us, who can be against us? That's what Paul argues in Romans. Now, they're about to enter the promised land, and here's what they had to know. God is the sovereign creator of all things. He upholds all things, and our God is for us. Even though man is sinful, also been on the screen every week for the last two years. This world is dark. It's opposed to God. And yet you can live the Christian life with confidence and boldness because our God is sovereign. Even though man is sinful, here's what we know. Christ is Savior. That's the heartbeat pounding through Genesis. Now, we don't see Jesus' name mentioned here, but everything is pointing us towards the Savior who's going to come right from the beginning. 
So Joseph now steps into his father's role. And he says to his brothers, he says to his family, I'll provide for you. I'll provide for your little ones. Only Joseph was not their savior. And Joseph cannot be our savior. How often do we look to a man to fix all things for us? Rather than looking to God, we say, oh, this, this person will fix it. Joseph will fix it. This president will fix it. This man is our hope. And yet look at this gifted man, this godly man. At the end of, and we've just been building up to Joseph throughout all of the end of Genesis. Where does he end up? In a box. Literally the last words. And they put him in a coffin. He never gets to experience the blessing of the promised land for himself. Oh, he dies in hope, and yet he doesn't see it. Look at the end of this chapter. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's Oh, just a, a, an interesting note uh, where it says we're counted as his own. The literal Hebrew there says uh, we're upon Joseph's knees. It, it's a euphemism to say uh, they were as if they were his own children. You, you remember we studied a couple weeks ago when we were in Genesis 48 where Joseph presents his two sons before his father. And his father says, these two boys are going to be mine. They're, they're as if they were my children, not my grandchildren, but my children. Whatever children you have in the future, they're yours, but these two boys are mine. And then we have this really uh, interesting phrase that leads us to make a mistake about how old they were, because the boys were about 20, and it said, Joseph took them from his knee and presented them to his father. It's the same word. It's a euphemism to say, uh, these boys were my possession. I, I'm the one... Uh, providing for them, caring for them, protecting them, and he placed them before his father. It didn't mean he was bouncing two 20-year-old boys on his knee. That would just be difficult. And Joseph said to his brothers, this is verse 24, I'm about to die. So we, we've had a bit of compression of time here. We've skipped ahead to the end of Joseph's life, and he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. He will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember we said earlier, as soon as you mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's being intentional. He's not just giving us a family tree or a family history lesson. He's saying this is the covenant, the covenant of Abraham. Our family is adopted into that. God's going to visit you. He's going to bring you to the land he promised. Then Joseph made his son swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died. This is, uh, what an end to this story in Genesis. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. Here's Joseph's promise to his family. The hope that you have is not that I will always be with you. I will not. Your hope is that God is with you. He says, God will surely visit you. He says it in verse 24. He says it in verse 25. Only doesn't that almost sound confusing as we read that in our English Bibles? God's going to be with you. Oh, by the way, he's going to come visit you. Now, when we talk about visiting, we're like, oh, we should go see so-and-so who we haven't seen in a long time. Let's go visit them. 
As if we haven't been with them, and now we're going to go be with them. That is not what this Hebrew word here. In fact, in both, in 24 and 25, he uses the same Hebrew word twice. It's just the same word twice in a row. It's two slightly different versions of it. Pakad and Yakad. It means not just to go visit, as if we're going to go see somebody. It means to oversee, to take note of, to attend to. I'm going to die. You're not going to have me, but our God will attend to you. I'm going to die. You won't have me, but our God will oversee you. It also has this idea of to muster together. Like one would call an army to march off to war. I'm going to die, but God will muster together his people. He will bring them together. And when, when the Hebrew uses these two words side by side, hey, how many of you ever, ever, ever sent a text that you wanted to make sure that they got the intensity of it, and so you did all caps? Anybody ever done that before? That's what Hebrew does. It, when you put these two words side to side, this is all caps. This is shouting. This is why it's translated, he will surely visit you. There's a, there's a promise and a guarantee. Our God will be with you. He will oversee. He will watch. He will attend to you. And he will bring you out of this land. Remember, the people who are hearing it have just come from this land. And here's the promise all the way back from Joseph. God won't leave you here. He will bring you together that he will bring you into this promise. The promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The language of covenant. And now at the end of his life, he's pointing them, he's pointing us towards this covenant promise of God towards his people. Yet Joseph never sees it. The first 17 years of his life, he lives as a nomad in Canaan until he is kidnapped and sold into slavery. And the last 93 years of his life, he lives in Egypt, in exile, far from this promised land of God. Yet after all of those years, here's his deathbed sermon that he preaches. God will always keep his covenant promises. It's the song of his deathbed. Our God is faithful. We can trust him. Oh, that the church today would hear that and believe it. That the call from the church would be live every day to the glory of God because our God can be trusted. Honor the Lord in all that you do because our God is faithful to his people. Friends, God's plan for you is good. And yet in my lifetime, in your lifetime, we will rarely see the whole picture. We just get glimpses of it here and there, but we rarely see the fullness of what God is doing. Why? Because it takes time. It takes history. It takes heartache. Struggle. You wouldn't know the great depths of God's love for you. You wouldn't know the great depths of God's compassion towards you if you hadn't walked through times that broke your heart. It takes the ebb and flow. It takes the recognition of my sin, repentance of it, redemption that comes through Christ alone, all lived out in a life centered around hope. That's why the the summation of all that we have looked at in Genesis isn't actually found in Genesis. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11, this great statement of faith of those who have come before. Here's what it says, Hebrews 11, verses 39 to 40. And all these, all that we have read about of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Adam, and Noah, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, 
they should not be made perfect. Friends, their story isn't completed until the fullness of God's people are brought into fellowship with the Lord. Right now, you and I are receiving the benefit of the promise made to Abraham that in Christ all nations would be reconciled. Oh, that it's still piling up, that the blessing of God is still piling up, and now these saints stand on the other side of eternity just watching what God is doing. So here's what I want to end with. Number one, this is a generational covenant. Don't expect to see the whole thing in your lifetime. Here's what you should expect to see in your lifetime. God's faithfulness towards you. God's hand of provision and protection over you in the midst of heartache and disappointment. This is a generational covenant that we will only fully see when we step on the other side of eternity's veil. And so here's the call to you and me, and that is live and die in hope. Live your life in hope of the saving power of God, the keeping power of our God, and friends, die in that same hope, even if you never see the full picture. Here's the second thing. When we don't see it, and in fact when we feel the darkness and the evil of this world crowding in around us, I would say to you, weeping is right. Weeping is right in a sin-broken world, and yet we weep in hope. Paul says we don't grieve as those who have no hope, and yet our hearts do grieve deeply. And yet, here's what we know at the end. Every, every tear that we shed today is a foreshadowing of what Revelation 21.4 promises in the perfect kingdom of God when he has righted all things. Here's the promise for you in the dark night of your soul. God will dry every tear from their eyes. It's not today, but it's coming. When everything is made right. And so righteous saints weep today, but weep in hope. Number three, like these brothers who come to Joseph, recognizing their sin from their past, that their sin testifies against them. Oh, friends, how many of us have a history and a past that just seems to follow us and testifies against you and condemns your heart and tells you again and again you're stuck here forever, things will never change. Maybe your family should give up on you. Maybe God should give up on you. Maybe the church should give up on you. No, like these brothers, we throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Not trusting in our own righteousness, we plunge ourselves neath Calvary's cleansing flood. And here's why. Because God is at work in this moment. Friends, are you going to see the whole picture? Nope. But God's at work in this moment. You may never see the whole thing. You may live and die in hope, yet never seeing. But here's the promise. God will accomplish his good plan. And your life gets to be part of that. Well, that's the message of Genesis, that our God created all things, he rules all things, and that your life fits into his plan. It's not that your life is the center of his plan, we just get to be one puzzle piece in it for our good and his glory. Worship team, if you would come on up. I want to just encourage you as we turn now to the table of the Lord. Spend some time, you, you see the family worship guide in your bulletin. Read together Genesis 50. Spend some time meditating on the fact that how we live and how we hope in this world affects our ability to share the gospel with those around us.
What are the implications of the fact that Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, yet God intended it for good? What are some of the ways that we see that played out here? By the way, in seeing it played out here, we see it played out in our own lives. And then make a list as a family of people who you know, people who you love, who need to hear the good news of the gospel. That there's a God who created all things, and his plan is still right on track. His intentions towards them are good and to save. And then pray for them by name, that God would lead them to the Savior. That's what we've seen throughout Genesis. God leading this family, calling this family out of all the families of the earth. Oh, that God would do that for those that we love. Every week as we come to the table of the Lord, we don't come because we are the good ones. We don't come because we're the righteous. Like, uh, come to the table of the Lord if you did more good than you did bad this week. That, that's how Islam sorts out who's going to heaven. If, if at the end of your life the scales are measured and you did more good than you did bad, then you get to enter into paradise. No, the Christian good news is this. We have done bad and Christ has paid for our sins. We've fallen short of the glory of God, and in Christ we have been given his righteousness rather than our filthy rags. And so we are a confessing church. Oh, we're going to strive every day to put sin to death and to put on Christ, and yet here's why we know we can come before the Lord, because we are confessing our hope is in our God. Our hope is in Christ alone. So would you stand together with me as we confess in the words of the Apostle Creed, the hope of our salvation. And then if you're a believer, would you come to the table and declare by taking the bread that symbolizes his body broken for us, by taking the cup that symbolizes his blood shed for my sins, and preaching the good news as we eat and drink together, my hope is Christ alone. And yet if you're in here and you're not a believer, I'd actually encourage you not to come. We confessed it earlier today that those who wrongly come to the table, who don't believe that, actually eat and drink condemnation against themselves. Well, how's that true? Because this eternal God who made all things made a way for you to be saved. He made a way for your sin to be paid for and dealt with in Christ upon the cross, and you said, no, thank you, I'll do it myself. Well, if you say no thank you to the sacrifice of God that cost him his only son, and then you go through the motions of eating the bread and drinking the cup, you're actually proclaiming, you gave this sacrifice and I don't want it. That is condemnation on yourself. Oh, instead, questioning friend, wandering friend, cry out to God. Oh God, if this is real, would you save me? If this is real, would you let me see it? Let's confess together our hope and then come to the table. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.